This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Joanna Nell, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you very much for having me. Now, it is the festive season, <laughs> so Joanna and I have both got a glass of champagne, so excuse us if the uh, if the conversation goes one way or, or the other. Okay, so Joanna is a British-Australian writer. She's also a GP, an advocate for positive ageing. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> an accidental advocate, <laughs> I would say. Go. Her essays and short fiction have won multiple awards and been widely published in magazines, journals and literary anthologies. Her first four novels were national bestsellers and now with her latest novel, Mrs Winterbottom Takes a Gap Year, Joanna explores retirement, mismatched expectations and living the life in the moment. Gosh, it's so timely. Yes, a lot of people are saying that. I think oh. I sort of hit the zeitgeist of maybe a lot of people are, are thinking mm. about retirement. Mm-mm. Do you know, I always thought my approach to retirement was going to be kicking and screaming. <laughs> but I think biology kind of steps up in a way or steps in, if you like, and you kind of just go with it. And the more I think about it, the more it sounds more attractive to me. <laughs> But I think that the days of the traditional retirement, you know, where we worked up to 65, was now 67, and mm. then you put your feet up and you got your pension and, and pretty much that was it. Mm. Uh, I think that that's gone. And I think that some people are looking to retire earlier in their careers, maybe in their, their mm. 50s. Some mm. people are, are still going at 80 and have mm. no intention of retiring. So Joe I think, Biden. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that the whole concept of retirement is just as sort of a stepping back and a withdrawal from life is really an outdated one. And people are just maybe lo- looking at it as a time of transition into another phase, another exciting chapter of their lives. Yeah. And I also think it's cultural. I mean, I, I think Americans aren't as wedded to retirements as we have been here, to retirement. They really, I don't think, have had a set age over the years, from what I know anyway. So, because, you know, very often, like if you're flying a US airline or any service, the um, the stewards um, can be of any age. Whereas, you know, like with other airlines, you know, people are only in their 30s. So I feel as though they've had a different attitude culturally that to what we've had. But I think also, too, it's an affluence thing. It's it's related to money, isn't it? Well, that, well, that's right. And I, I think that we do focus a lot on, on you know, paying off the mortgage mm. and getting enough mm. super. But it's almost like the finish line is moving further and further away for a that's lot of right. people. And, yeah. and it may be that a lot of people who, who can't afford to retire are, are working yeah. later into life. And so, yeah, definitely finances yeah. come into it. And I think, too, I've got a, a theory that 
I'm excited for young people. I'm excited about the next generation of young people. I see them engage in social justice issues, in climate change, in, and I get really excited about um, their attitudes. And then I'm noticing more and more that people, older people, people my age, for instance, are still out there, the ageist thing, that's where I'm going with that, is is kind of diminishing a little bit, or is that just me? No, I would hope so. I, I think ageism is one of those almost invisible isms, if you like. You know, we've sort mm. of kicked the all those other kinds of discrimination, whether it be on gender, race, or whatever. I think that ageism is almost an invisible discrimination where, yeah. uh, you know, it, it's almost internalised as well. We're often not aware that we're ageist ourselves, mm. you know, mm. when we say, oh, I can't do that because of my age or it's not age appropriate. And I think it works both ways. I think that younger people can look at older people and, you know, and have certain preconceptions about older people, but it also works the other way, doesn't it? Does. it? So older yes. people looking at, yeah. at younger people and, and, you know, having a certain assertions about yeah, what yeah. young people are like. So hopefully in the future we'll break, manage to break down those barriers as well. Um, I was at the pool um, only yesterday with my great-nephew who's 10. We were playing this game where you dive down at the bottom and get a toy. Whoa, very, very hard for me, right? <laughs> and after 10 or 15 minutes, I was like, oh, God, I can't do this anymore. And I said to him, you know, why don't you play with somebody else? So, you know, of course, kids make friends so quickly. So he's playing with somebody else. And I heard him say to the other child, oh, yeah, she's tired. She's 38. <laughs> And I thought, oh my God, what you are 38, to be 38 again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but it was the perception, I guess, too, of him looking up and thinking, well, you know, really 38, 59, 60, it's all the same to him at the age of 10. I I don't think I'd want to be 38. No, I certainly wouldn't want to be 28 or 18 again. I think, you know, once I hit 50, I'm 57 now, that, you know, Mm. life sort of opened up for me. Mm. I think you're so full of confidence uh, or more confidence than were before. And you you sort of draw on all those life lessons that you've learned. So, Mm. no, I I certainly don't hanker to be younger anymore. I remember I had a really good friend who died at 49 from lung cancer. Um, and short of her 50th birthday. And so I decided to go big time with my 50th. Mm. I really went big and I had a big, big sit-down party in the park. Like it was 60 people sit down and it was so beautiful. And the caterer said to me, I've never seen anyone so happy about Mm. turning 50. Mm. Well, you are when you start losing your friends. Mm. Yeah. No, that can be a real wake-up call, can't it? It was a real wake-up call. And I think once you get to that stage of life and you you can see that what's ahead of you Mm -hmm. may not be as much as what you already have behind you, I think you start to value life Mm -hmm. and live more in the present and Mm -hmm. and worry, you know, sweat the little Mm -hmm. things less and Mm -hmm. less. And I used to hear, I don't know if you hear this as well, Joanna, but I used to hear people say, oh, you know, I feel invisible, like people around my age or I am. I don't don't know, for some reason, maybe because I'm, I'm not attuned to it or I don't want I don't feel invisible at all I think you can allow yourself to be seen as invisible. I mean, I don't mind being invisible when I nip yes. down to the local <laughs> yes, shop in my own boot. But I think it's about speaking up and making yourself seen uh-huh. and, and heard and, you know, sort of not maybe 
allowing yourself to shrink into the background, you know, in mm. in, 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 in sort of wearing camouflage clothes yeah, yeah, yeah. To, to blend in. It's I think it's having the confidence to step forward and say, hello, I'm here and, yeah. uh, you know, I think know, step I forward and step up. Yeah. Like don't lose what it is you stand for. Don't lose what it is that's made you tick. Don't lose, yeah, I think it's all about that. I am often surprised sometimes if I get on a bus or a train and someone stands up for me. I thought, oh, 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 I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> yeah, that, that can be a bit confronting, especially when you don't look pregnant. You think, oh, okay. <laughs> okay, it's an age thing. <laughs> All right, so tell me, when you're writing a book like this, I mean, I think there there's a lot of humour in it. There's a, you know, you have to be self-deprecating, I guess, but you're also bringing humour into what is, you know, a really big topic. Talk to me about that process of writing. The humour, I think, has become part of my natural writing voice. I think when I started out, I tried to write in a very literary voice, as we all do, and it, it really wasn't me. I think mm. I, at, at heart, I'm, I'm sort of more of a light-hearted person. Or, or having said that, you know, the, the profession I chose as a, a doctor is very serious and mm. we're often dealing with, with some very difficult and, mm. and, and sad times and experiences. But I think I learned to use humour and when appropriate. And, mm. and that becomes a feeling for when it's appropriate and when it isn't to sort of maybe soothe a little bit. You know, mm. when you think about, you know, a kid hurting themselves, right. yeah. you know, you, you lift them up and you tickle them and you make them laugh, yeah. you know, and suddenly it, the pain goes away a little bit or, yeah. or it helps as a balm a little bit. So that, yeah, yeah. that has just come as a partly as a natural thing. I love to laugh, but mm. partly is, you know, it's also a therapeutic thing. I think that you know, you can if you can make people feel better mm. by having a, a little laugh or a, a giggle. That's mm. to me is a, a sign of a job well done. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Okay, let's go back. Let's go back to where it is you started, why you wanted to, to study medicine, and how you ended up. I guess, transitioning from being a GP to a writer. Mm. So this goes back to um, the early 1970s and I was eight years old and I'd watched something on TV the night before and I think it was a sort of emergency ward 10 or some sort of medical program in the early 70s. And by coincidence, the next day, the teacher ran, went round the class and asked everybody what they wanted to be when they grew up. And, you know, the hands went up for teacher or train driver or football or whatever. And I put my hand up and said I wanted to be a doctor and this teacher looked horrified and she sort of and she said well well, that's a job for the boys, really, isn't oh, it? You wow. know, you should set your, your sights on on being a nurse if that's what you want to do. And uh, wow. and certainly, I had nothing against nursing at all. That would have been a fantastic profession too. But I think the moment somebody told me I couldn't mm. do something, it's, it made me want to do it even more. Mm. And so I was determined to sort of prove them wrong. And also, I had a bit of a an unhealthy interest in the sort of human body. I was always looking at you know books in the library and uh, and, and dead animals on the side of the the road. So I was sort of fascinated by by that, by science. But that sort of took me away from my first love, which was reading. I, I you know, I discovered books. I, Mum said I taught myself to read before I went to, oh, wow. to school. Uh, so I was hungry for story and they bought me a typewriter around the same age, about eight or nine, Mum and Dad, because oh. they could see that I was writing little books and things. And mm. Dad, who's a bit of a, an archivist, he should have uh, been a, a museum curator. He's kept all these things. He's kept oh, wow. the very same typewriter and all my early stories, which is which is quite a funny thing to look back on because, of course, they're written by a child. 
child, but mm-hmm. there's an element almost of the voice mm-hmm. in it there, which is really was really I interesting. I think writing from being a reader, and and I guess being our age, you do grow with an author. Like I have seen authors, you know, that I've admired, and I don't notice that they're getting older until I start reading the story and they're about different. Paul Oster mm-hmm. really comes to mind when I'm thinking about this. Like, you know, because when he wrote, was it New York Stories? I think that was the first one of when he was really young and on the street and doing this and doing that. And then when he got to, and I can't remember the name of the later book, the most recent one, it was about him being a grandparent. And I feel that there was still him in it, but it's a totally different story, isn't it? Mm. So I think if you're writing at seven or eight and then you're writing in your 50s, there is your voice. And I think if if somebody had said uh, in a career's talk, uh, oh, you know, you love writing, you're actually quite good at writing stories, maybe you should be a writer. But of course they didn't do that. So it wasn't something that was encouraged. It was always, you know, magically writers somehow were Mm. born like that. And Mm. uh, so I have a fascination with medicine, though. Do you, so you don't mind the sight of blood? No. Okay, not so, at all. Yeah. Or the gooey side of it. Look, I have a thing about toenails. I'm not oh, wow. awfully keen on toenails and <laughs> eyes. I don't think I could have ever yeah. been an ophthalmologist, but the rest no. of it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't Phase, bother me. Yeah. No, not yeah. at all. And did you enjoy that? Did you enjoy studying and that profession? And tell me, was that back in the UK and, you know, how that you transitioned from there to here, to Australia? Yes. So I uh, went to Cambridge for my preclinical and so that was learning all the anatomy and physiology and, uh, you know, a lot of lab work there. Mm. And it's science, isn't it? It's science. I didn't so much enjoy all that. I was fascinated by the dissection, by the, the human bodies. We did live dissect, not live, obviously, but real real dissection on, yeah. on real bodies uh, at the time. Oh. And I found that fascinating. But I found myself always thinking, what's the story? Who is this person? You know, mm. what's their story? How have they come to be lying on this mm. table here? And really, medicine made a lot more sense to me once I went on to the clinical stage, which is, uh, I did three years at, at Oxford. Then. <laughs> so, um, I was very lucky to, to be at both. And that was three years on the wards with real patients. And a Right, that's wow. when I really felt I'd sort of found that niche. But it wasn't so much the, you know, the pathology and the diseases, because it used to be that, you know, patient was like the, oh, the, uh, you know, the cellulitis of the leg yes. in bed 10 or whatever. It was always for me the story of that person. Yes. I would spend far too long taking a history from a patient, you know, yeah. or fonts me to, haven't you finished oh, yet? I mean, how long did I you know. go out with him for? I know, <laughs> but that's just fascinating, you know, and especially the older patients who and where had did you a lot get of married? To me, that was, I was taking copious notes, um, which wasn't required. And you were here to get your appendix out? Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Um, So I went into general practice, uh, having enjoyed also psychiatry as well. That was quite an eye-opener there. Um, And and as a GP, I think you have that relationship with people and you you are hearing stories. Yeah, and I certainly had the, what I consider the best years of of general practice when I worked in a small village and then again at another practice um we moved to australia in 2003 right my husband well 
I don't know, life was pretty good in the New Forest. Uh, I was I had a job. I was a partner in a GP practice. I had two young children, a three-year-old and a, an eight-year-month-old baby. Well, Just finished renovating a house and my husband came home one day and said, oh, the office he worked for, um, the cruise line at the time in their office, he said, they, they want me to move to Sydney. Oh. And I said, oh, no, 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 no. I don't, I'm just not ready to, to do that. I'd travelled a lot, but I wasn't ready to up sticks. But also that distance. And the distance. And I, I know, and I was close oh. to my family, and I had a job, and I oh. loved. And but then I remember one day it was a very sort of rainy day in the middle of winter, it was February day, and I'd been in the house with a three three year old and an eight month old all day. And when my husband came home from work, I said, "Can we go to Sydney? Let's get some sunshine. <laughs> Let's go for a year." Yeah. And a year turned into twenty years, and my oh, children wow. have grown up here. And so, yep, still no writing though. You know, I was yeah. sort of working away. And you worked as a GP here? Yes, I did. I worked for uh, 10 years in um, a public hospital emergency department at oh, Mona Vale Hospital. Right. Long story, but as an overseas trained doctor, I wasn't allowed to work in um, anywhere where I build Medicare, which included oh, right. general practice. So I okay. worked in a hospital for 10 years, then went into general practice and uh, was a very busy, you know, working mum. Mm. Um, a lot of people recognise that. And it was uh, the infamous 10-pin bowling accident that changed everything. It was a get-to-know-the-other-parent evening at my children's new school, mm-hmm. and I was under strict instructions not to embarrass them. And to cut a long and painful story short, I did the splits, had to be fireman's lifted out of the place oh, um, my with goodness. ruptured hamstrings. Oh, painful. Um, so I did embarrass them. I embarrassed myself. As well, but I had to lie. I had surgery, and I had to lie down for six weeks (gasps) afterwards while this whole thing healed. No, at home on the sofa, and so I was lying on my back with my laptop (gasps) resting on my chest, basically. And I just—it was almost like I had just sort of a little bit of an epiphany. And I thought, well, I've got to this stage of life. I was in my late forties by then. Like you know, I've given up all this time for everyone else and my family, which mm. I don't regret, of course. But I thought I'd never done anything for myself, and so I found myself googling creative writing courses, and I found the Australian Writers' Centre and, and enrolled oh, in wow. a course there. And that's yeah. when my writing journey started, quite yeah. accidentally. Mm. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I wanted just to touch on hospitals as well. I mean, obviously I, I wasn't a doctor, but I was in hospital recently <laughs> and I was quite unwell. And uh, my family were really advocating for me to get a private room. It was a public hospital, it was RPA. And I didn't want that because I was in a room of four. <laughs> and I tell you, the only thing that kept me going were other people's stories. Mm. And because people turned over really quickly, they were only there for one or two nights and I was there for two weeks, right, I really, really 
got interested in why people are there. I would watch how many visitors they would get, how many, you know. And so I had, even before I would start speaking to them and introducing myself, I had a story for each one of them. And I thought to be in a room on your own would be so lonely and so boring to be with other people. I found that really, really helpful in my healing as well. Because yep. then you you meet people that are going through something, you know, similar or not, you know. It's, it's, it's true. And a lot of people make actually very close friendships with people yeah. they've been in hospital with. And I think we're at our most vulnerable there, we are. aren't we? And we're already opened up. You mm. know, we're, mm. we're open to the world. There's not much that's uh, private, yeah. you know, when you're, yeah. you're sharing, um, uh, you know, you're divided really just by a paper curtain. So I think that there's that tendency to, and to, to maybe to cling to other people yeah. um, as well. And to well. help other and people. And to help, yes, yeah. exactly. And so. because I was, I became the senior person in the room, if you like. Because I'd been there <laughs> At so 38, long. Yes. <laughs> At 38, yes. 38. But in terms of longevity, I was helping people navigate the system or if they needed to go somewhere and whatever. And again, that gave me something. Mm. I needed a distraction. You know, I found that really, really helpful. And I've got to say, second to none care. I mean, the public hospital system yeah. here, when it works, it works really, really well. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. It's I mean, a shame that it's not as well staffed as it should be, that mm. the staff are, are mm. um, you know, but mm. if you can help each other. and Yeah, uh, that's right. That's, that's right. Okay. So you started writing. Now, it's one thing Googling a creative writing course and another thing writing a book. Yes. Yes. But um, (laughs) as soon as I enrolled, and and at the time it sort of felt like quite a lot of money just to, Mm. you know, just to spend on something that Mm. was on a whim. But Mm. I have to say, and I don't know how else to describe it other than finding a little missing piece of the puzzle. Mm. It was like almost falling in love. I just had that instant sensation that this was something I had to do and I needed to do and I loved it. I was just, my heart was going, was so excited, even with that very first assignment that I did. I just knew it was the right thing for me. It was tapping into something mm. that was that was so innate in me that I'd been ignoring for, for so long, really. Mm. And I one of the first assignments was to um, find a character, to put them in a certain setting and to have a dialogue. To, you know, we're talking about dialogue, I think yeah. it was. And I was working in uh, aged care at the time, visiting a lot of retirement homes. And I suppose my mind was in mm. this, that sort of environment so the character I created was a, a woman who was about to turn 80 and she was down at her local beach cafe having a coffee with her much racier 80-year-old friend who was persuading her to get back to online dating well, you know, after she'd lost her husband. And I just loved doing that assignment. Mm. In fact, to the point where I turned it into a short story because I didn't feel I was done with these two characters and the short story was shortlisted for a, a prize. Oh, wow. And cool. even after that... Yeah. I still feel I wasn't done with these two characters. They kept sort of coming to me and, uh, you know, waking me up in the middle of the night chatting. And they were the two characters that I turned into Peggy and Angie in The the wow. Single Ladies of Jacaranda Retirement Village, my first yes. novel. So they yeah, were was with me right from the yeah. beginning. Yeah, yeah. So, so, yes, I got so much out of that. And, you know, it took me from the time I enrolled in that first class to publishing my first book was six years, which is exactly the same amount of time mm. it took me to trying to be a doctor because you can't just turn up and write a no, book you can't and turn up expect and write a book. it to be good. Speaking of retirement villages and the, the work that you did around that, I think, again, the perception now more so is changing 
around those. I think that they're better facilities anyway. Well, not all of them, but a lot of them are. And I think attitudes are changing to how people live their lives there. My mother spent the last part of her life in a a nursing home. It was more like a hospital because she had dementia. However, the level of care and the camaraderie and her interactions with the staff were absolutely gorgeous. Really, really beautiful care. When it works, it works well, doesn't it? It does, and, and if it can work well, and I, mean, yeah. I suppose we're talking more about aged care than mm. may, maybe sort of um, yes, you know in, independent definitely. living. And if it's possible to provide great care, brilliant care, mm. why shouldn't that be the normal and the standard? And, of course, I wrote a book about that as well, which was in a way my love letter to mm. nursing home, to aged care, to the many staff, the majority, vast majority of staff who are caring and dedicated and go above and beyond despite very poor play and recognition. They are so um, dedicated. You know, and... Oh. And, you know, that, so it is It is possible. And it's mm. not always to do with the furnishings and the surroundings. Um, it can be, you know, not a, you know, not a modern facility, a government-run fa- mm. government mm-hmm. facility. And uh, it's all down to the attitudes of oh, the staff. Oh, it is definitely the people and the people that want to be there. You know, my mother was there like full throttle COVID. Everyone was in full, you know, it was a PCR gear was it? Yeah. Oh, yeah, the PPE. The, PPE, yeah. yeah. Full PPE, yeah. You know, and every time you went to visit her, you had to have a COVID check, a test and whatever. Full on. And all the people around her were in full, all the carers, PPE gear. And, you know, one night I was with her, it was a Friday night, and it was early on, like she'd only been there for about a week or so. And this young fellow, now it was hard to see through the mm. gear, but I would have put him at 25, 26. And after and she was being, she was frightened. And after she calmed down, he said to her, Antoinette, will you dance with me? And he just took her by the arms and down they walked and they were dancing down the corridor. And one, I'd never seen a dance before. And two, he was just twirling her. And, you know, I just, I just thought that's a gift. Mm. That guy working there, you know, at the age of 25, that's Mm. a gift. And as time went on, when she was there, I saw him dance with many people. How wonderful. Something so simple. That doesn't cost anything, does it? I mean, if you just have have the time for that. But they need to be supported. I I, I must admit, I spend as much time supporting and counselling the staff often as the the, the residents. So they need to be supported to provide that care. Mm. And there's so many stories. There's stories with the patient. There's stories with the people that work there. There's story with the visitors, mm. you know. It's full of life as well. It is. And there are, you know, a lot of people. We see the the grim side on the we news do. that and we I'm did sure with the Royal are. Commission. Yeah. And in fact, the, yeah. my, my book, the third book, The Great Escape from Woodlands, was published on the day that the interim report of the Royal Commission mm. into aged care was, uh, was published. But there is also, I've seen people, you know, laugh. I've seen people flourish. They've come from home where they've neglected themselves. They've moved to an Mm -hmm. aged care facility Mm -hmm. and with the company and the care Mm -hmm. and the, you know, the medical care and and Mm -hmm. regular feeding, they have absolutely flourished. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I've helped one or two to escape, if you like, and and Mm -hmm. to go home again. And uh, so, yes, look, Mm -hmm. they're they're full of life and, and 
and people there have had very mm. long and interesting lives. So mm. they make they make good characters. Mm. And you know, there is well, I don't know if it's a resurgence, but let's say surgence of books around these subjects, around people in retirement village or nursing care and, and yours are are those as well. But do you think that that for us, like, you know, because reading is so integral in terms of how we see life and how we see, you know, feel other people and show empathy and mm-hmm. show experience and whatever, that there is, it's breaking down the barriers of ageing. It's breaking down the barriers of, you know, people in their 80s where I think, you know, white societies in particular have really, they haven't acknowledged it in the past, the wisdom and the life and all the wonderful things that a person can give back. Yeah, look, I think you've hit it on the, the head there. And it was mm. certainly about certain societies, you know, mm. we should be, you know, respecting our, our mm. elders and, and acknowledging them, shouldn't we? Mm-hmm. But I think, yes, up until fairly recently, and I think, you know, there were a few before before I uh, got there, but, you know, hopefully the, the you know, the, the barriers have been broken down and the stigma has been removed. So, Yes, why not? Mm-hmm. You know, why why not mm-hmm. set uh, a, a book there as opposed to any other setting, really? There's, mm-hmm. The stories are there. And I think that was part of my... When doctors write, and there's quite a rich tradition, I think, of, of doctors as writers, one of the common themes when you look at... I'm, I'm not putting myself in the same league as Somerset Maugham or Anton Chekhov, um, but there's often a social issue... Um, that they're trying to address with Chekhov. It was the Russian penal colonies and Somerset Maugham, the slums of London, and they were writing to sort of highlight the conditions there. And in a way, I think that, you know, my books are, I don't want to, you know, smash people over the head with my message, but I want them to be a positive experience of, of ageing and, and in that way sort of smash some of the stereotypes That's about exactly ageing right. um, yeah. and, and sort of a, a address ageing head mm. on. I spoke with Shankara Chandra recently, who won the Miles Franklin, and she talked about finding a place that was culturally appropriate for her mother in terms of aged care. And I was the same. You know, we put my mother into a Maronite um, care facility because I thought it was important she had dementia, that there were some things around her that were familiar. And I think that's important too, to make sure that people are placed or they go to somewhere where, you know, there are people like them. That's true. But wouldn't it be wonderful if their system could adapt to the individual Both, rather yeah. than you having to shop mm. around to find the place mm. that is the most suitable to actually provide an environment, you know, which is uh, which mm. can adapt to the resident rather than the other way around. But mm. yes, certainly, particularly when there's language and cultural mm. barriers mm. like that. And, you know, I, uh, I have um, looked after a couple of people who, where English is not their first language, and gradually as they've d- advanced in dementia, they've lost their English. Mm. And it's very isolating when you can't communicate mm. in, in or, or there aren't staff or people who understand your mother tongue. Mm, mm, it is. It's very isolating. Okay, so back to your writing. Tell me how it is you got first got published. When did you think, okay, I've got a book and now I'm ready to take the next step? I mean, that would have been quite nerve-wracking, I'd imagine. It was. Even having written a first novel, which is not the one that was actually published, that's still my kind of training novel and still in a Practice. on my hard drive somewhere. I 
never had any expectation of being published. I was writing purely for myself. I thought, you know, this I'm not just not good enough. You know, I'm not I'm not going to be one of those published writers. But I'll just do it because I've now I've started. I can't stop. And so I started to enter some short story competitions and was, you know, please getting some pleasing feedback, including win, winning one or two and uh, winning residencies Which is great. and things. I mean, it's such it's a great entry level, great. isn't it? It yeah. is. And I really encourage any mm. new writers to mm. do that. It gives you a bit of a portfolio of work, mm. but it gives you a bit of feedback. It, you know, it trains you to work to a word count and a deadline yeah. or whatever. But it also gives you a lot of confidence. You know, if you start to, you know, get shortlisted or, mm. or uh, placed or win those, it gives you a lot of confidence. It did with me. The very first one I, I won, I think I won $100. Um, <laughs> if it was the Henry Lawson Society, the yeah. emerging writer. And I bought myself a case of, not, well, not obviously vintage champagne, but I bought yeah. myself a case of champagne so that if anybody ever said to me, do you make any money out of writing? I'd be able to say, well, darling, it keeps me in champagne. Uh, <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> but um, So from the short stories, there, you know, Joanna. I, I yeah. then had the, the novel yeah. and just tentatively started sending it out to, you know, join the other novels on slush piles and things and got a few, you know, a few nibbles with that. But ultimately, you know, nothing came of that. I tried pitching a couple of times face to face. And that's another great thing I would mm. encourage mm. Uh, new writers to do if you get the chance at mm. a and festival. And writing or, courses in festivals. Yes, yes, all of those things. It's making contact. Mm. And if, you know, all writers are introverts, but a lot of publishers and agents are introverts. So we're all sort of equally mm. terrified. But I think having that face-to-face, and that's exactly how I got my agent, actually. I did one of these um, wow. Australian Society of Authors literary speed dating. So I had three minutes to mm-hmm. to pitch to uh, to the agent. And, um, yeah, she was interested. By then, I'd actually heard back from a couple of slush piles. One was 14 months later oh, wow, after I'd yeah. first pitched. So, you know, well, they don't know. have the resources, really, no, to read they all don't. Through. Is I mean, it Rebecca you... Saunders who publishes you? Rebecca Saunders is now my publisher with, yes. with Hachette. And, and I've been so fortunate to she's be with wonderful. the same, yeah. I am, the same publisher with five books. And she's really done what she set out or promised that she would do is help me to nurture my career. Mm. And now we have a great working relationship. Mm. Mm. Joanna, we're out of time. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed our chat today. Thank you. So have I. Thank you very much for having me. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. 
Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.